What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code advices for some additional savings. And of course, that helps to support our programming. Check them out for all sorts of high quality performance supplements, health supplements, even things like a whole food multivitamin. You can get that stuff through True Nutrition. Uh, Scott Stevenson, we're back with part two. Now, is this episode 101 or is it episode 100 part two? I don't know. It's 100 point B. Point B. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to talk all about uh, bodybuilding science. You should know the nutrition edition. Is that is that correct? Yeah. And of course, nutrition is gigantic and can talk about protein and fats. There's a million different topics, but I just picked some interesting stuff that are sort of in my wheelhouse that is um, I get asked about a lot that okay. even talks about. So it's just sort of like things that kind of occur to me, like what's good stuff to know? What would be a you know nice thing to be aware of? Can I, 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 I don't want to spoil anything, but will there be talk about <laughs> cereal? We can talk about cereal all day long. I, do you want to take me off on a cereal tangent for anyone <laughs> who's, who's watching? Like, we'll just do cereal. I'll just ask and, you like uh, the next it, hour, what is better uh, oatmeal or cereal? And then after you answer that, I'll be like, cereal. what is better steak or cereal? Cereal. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is not? <laughs> and just go on and on. You don't, like that. I'm going to say cereal. Whenever you just, you start the question. It's always cereal. The answer will always forever be cereal. Yeah. Yes. So actually one of the um, slides we're going to get to near the end is from that cereal gains nation post that's on Instagram. Okay. That sweet. folks can go listen. It's the second from last one that I put up. Yeah. Um, because I still get quite, it's funny. One of the, I get so many questions about which is better as this is why you start saying that. And then I get questions. So what's the serial gains nation thing about? I'm like, check the post. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't look, you know? So it's nice to have uh, put together the whole post, but still then the questions abound. Yeah. It's like, you can't, there's no way that you can have a f- complete encapsulating answer that will a- answer all questions. Right. about something that seems like on Instagram because either they won't read it, which is okay, then they can go read it, which is great, which is why I wrote the post, or there'll always be something. There's always, anytime you open the can, the worms will come out infinitely. It's like a, it's like a hydra. You cut off one worm and another <laughs> worm pops out of the can, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Well, I we appreciate your patience with us uh, going over. Because <laughs> listen, at the same time, I'll say this. Uh, anytime you're teaching... Like, I think that repetition helps me learn. Uh, You've said a lot of the same things a lot of times over the past five years since we've started this podcast. And some of it finally started sinking in. So, you know, there is there is that aspect. So I appreciate your patience with me and everyone else. I just did a podcast a couple of days ago and, um, you know, people say, oh, you're so smart and all this sort of thing. It's like, "Ah, I'm curious. Yeah. And I forget shit a lot, but I just am so curious that I keep looking it up again. <laughs> so eventually, I sort of stay ahead of the wave of my amnesia, yeah. my dementia, some people might call it, by continuing to repeatedly look up the information, remind myself of what I once knew. So what some people says, well, he's forgotten more than you you know, it's possible because I forgot just about as much as I know. So that's almost true for me, except I barely kept ahead of the game, so... Repetition, absolutely. That's the thing is, um, 
it sounds nice when you can just rattle off a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. but that's only because I've forgotten those things probably 10 times and just remind myself 11. Yeah. Yeah, I could so, see that. I'd forgotten. Yeah. A, I realized I'd forgotten like some whole concepts that Victoria helped me understand uh, ha- after having been mm-hmm. sick. Like it was just like gone, and I completely needed a refresher. Like go back to square one. I, you know right. what? I I, uh, I just real remembered this. Um, one of our listeners, because we do get this from time to time, somebody commented on YouTube. Uh, oh my gosh, you guys are too smart for me. This is like you're way above my level. I'm going to tell you what, uh, I feel the same way as that listener does. But what I've learned is, is that, you know, when we get into some more complex ideas on this show, which, which I think we have, you know, that's, that's kind of what this show is. I don't always get it all the time, but I stick Mm. through, I continue listening. And by the end, some of the pieces come together. And it doesn't mean you can't go back and listen again or continue listening to the show because Scott will talk about those same concepts again down the road and you'll hear it in a slightly different way. Uh, But I think the key is, is just being open minded and continuing to to listen. Don't shut it off. You got to see it through and you may not get it all, but you will get more of the pieces than you had going in. That's the way that I've looked at it, at least. Yeah, I like that perspective. It's interesting if you look at Facebook, social media, discussion boards, everyone likes to find their biases being confirmed somewhere in what other people have to say. So sometimes you'll hear people they're talking about name the topic and birds of a feather will flock together so that they can they can reify their own beliefs or their own thoughts sure. or their own arguments. So they'd like to hear that. So some podcasts will go and you know, you, you listen to someone who is quote unquote at your level who's saying things you almost know, you know, 99 out of 100 things that are said there already. And that yeah. feels great to like, yeah, pretty solid. You know, they're confirming for me what I already know, but that doesn't necessarily make you better. So let's use the, 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 the analogy that I think everyone listening will get is like you can bench press 135 pounds for, for 10 reps and you just keep going in the gym to confirm that you can bench press 135 for 10 reps. feels great. You know, I, I know I got this, but you're not going to get any stronger doing that. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was a guy. This just reminded me. There was a guy I went to high school with, played football with, and he was the strongest guy on the team. I think or had the best bench, <clears throat> and he was big, genetically gifted, but he just didn't have. He just didn't like to work out. Really, he liked to play, but he offseason didn't like. So he would just he'd come into the gym, and he'd walk in, and everyone was really impressed with how strong he was, and he would just do a little bit of a warm up and then max out just to confirm that he can, you know, do three sixty five on the bench. <laughs> and then he would leave. That's all he would ever do. He could have, it was really, I mean, amazing. Like even then I caught into like, you know, he's not getting any better. He's still better than everyone else pretty much, at least on the bench press. Yeah. So hopefully this, the podcast does, does something to help people improve. And I intentionally teach in that way hmm. using the kind of medical terminology that sometimes people aren't familiar with because that's what they'll see yeah. if they go and decide to read the research or they read, you know, other people who are posting at a really high scientific level um, and try to bring it back. But I try to like push like a good trainer would, like you try to get people to exceed their current ability level yeah. or what yeah. they perceive it to be. And yeah. that's how you get better. That's kind of why I, knowingly don't intentionally try to dust anybody by like, you know, speaking with these highfalutin terms, but I do like to try to um, raise everyone a little bit if at all possible. And not that I'm doing that for everyone. There's 
plenty of people who understand everything I'm saying. And then there's some who may be like, ah, shit, you know, I got like 2% of that. But that 2%, maybe 2% you would have gotten anywhere else. So that makes me happy. Exactly. That's the case. Exactly. So where do we start today, Scott? We'll start with the beginning with the slide one, that opening slide. All right. Just so people know. This is part two. Ooh, look how fancy that is. Looks cool. Okay. Yeah. So, again, this is just sort of nutrition stuff. I just, in fact, I'm going to say this term. People will will want to call me on this. I'm going to head them off the pass, that this is somewhat of a cherry-picked number of studies, at least the initial ones. Um, But think back before I even get into these studies that – um, we saw in the previous, in part one, the, the actual 100th episode, the Damas et al. studies where individuals were training one leg five times a week, three sets of nine to 12 or roughly 10 reps versus two or three times. And on average, there was no difference in those conditions. Hmm. didn't make a difference until they looked at the individuals. <clears throat> you will see the same thing in studies as well. Some studies will show one thing and some studies will, studies will show something else. So from a scientist who's trying to predict the future in subjects who've been sampled from a population of resistance-trained individuals or the population could be untrained individuals or it could be men over the age of 35 or whatever it might be, you want to be able to, from the previous research, um, infer that you're going to find a certain kind of findings in mm-hmm. the next study you might do or if you pick someone from that population. So if you're a male between the ages of 20 and 35 with six months of resistance training uh, in roughly or less than three, let's say, which is what the studies might have been done with, you can, you can have a good shot at predicting that they're going to do what you found on average occurred in the, in the study, which might be nothing. But nobody's, nobody, there's no average person, yeah. so to speak. Everyone's a little bit different. So what I think, and, and one of the ways that I think science can inform us is one from those averages, that's the way we normally think about things. What can you predict with reasonable accuracy? What's predictable, so to speak, from the research is what's also possible. And what we're trying to do with, with bodybuilding is exceed what we sense is maybe possible, is do something extraordinary. So if you want to be an extraordinary entrepreneur, a business person, um, a medical researcher, a teacher, you don't want to be average. You want to be better than average. You want to look to those, those individuals who are outliers, those individuals who are um, the black swans is the term that's sometimes used for those, those people who are the innovators, who are the early adopters, the ones who sort of ex- are a little bit different and that demonstrate that a certain thing is possible. So what I've, gonna, what I've done is at the beginning here is cherry-picked some of my favorite studies, not just because they're the ones that confirm what I've seen personally with clients and myself, but also because they're, they're re- reasonably well-done studies, actually. They're, they're well-controlled, and I'll talk about a little bit as we go through. So let's switch uh, to the next slide. All right. And that's the last slide. Oh, great. So, I, I started things out. I thought I had it going, Scott. I thought I uh, – yeah. yeah. Maybe I have it in the wrong order then. They um, may have come. They were ordered in that um, folder I sent you. Yeah, let me take a look here. But, at this but sometimes it puts. Yeah, that's weird. It'll, sometimes they'll order things differently like that. So are we looking for the one that says bodybuilding science worth knowing part two? 
What is? Um, we just had that one. Nutrition. This next one has, uh, yeah, it says at the top as well, and it's loaded with text, like just a boatload of text, which is kind of in, in, intentional. Is this it? Yes, that's the one. Right. So I guess, Scott, when, we, when wanna, we change slides, we'll have to do, we're going to have to do a little dance every time to figure out the order, because I, I didn't get them right. in the, the proper order, apparently, but we got them all. That's all good. Yeah, cool. So... This is the nutrient time. That's perfect. Yeah, we can move around a little bit. So this is the nutrient timing um, topic that um, is bantered back and forth. And first and foremost, the thing about nutrient timing is simply to make sure the nutrients, there's various ways you can time. You can have nutrient timing at bed. You can have nutrient timing in the morning. You know, the car backloading thing people, people call out every once in a while. You can have timing that's around the workout, what I call peri-workout recovery supplementation. This is where I'm going here with this next set of set of slides. And it's interesting because there's equivocal findings if you look at the literature. And some of these quotes are actually from a series of articles, a three-part series that I did on nutrient timing okay. for Elite FTS. Folks can find that. So the interesting thing is that if you look at some of the literature and look at some of the reviews, you'll, you'll see an opinion that it doesn't matter so much. But if you look in the, uh, in the upper part of the slide there, and people may have to pause or zoom in to see this, what I've got in, uh, in red highlighted there kind of illustrates the main point is that it's actually very common. If, if someone says, well, the research shows that there's no point in having nutrient time around your workout, look at the actual literature. Look at what people are actually doing. If you read the methods section, you'll find very common things like what is in the upper left, this is a study from 2012. Um, this is from Stu Phillips' lab. Mitchell was the first author. And Stu Phillips, I'm going to tie this together later, mm -hmm. was actually mentored in part and worked with a guy named Kevin Tipton, who did a ton of the early, and is still active, I think, to some degree, ton of the early muscle protein synthesis research, the protein um, requirements during resistance exercise. So he's, he's a big dude in the protein world when it comes to training. This is a study out of Stu Phillips' lab, and this is just from their methods section. They made sure their subjects had a meal before, 480 calories, two hours before the training session. And I didn't put it in highlight there, but if you look about the middle of that, that um, bottom of that block of text, they had them take right after their training a Power Bar Protein Plus bar. Okay. So they ensured pre- and post-exercise training. That was part of their study, right? That wasn't something they were studying in this particular study. This was actually a, a heavy load versus light load study that I'm referring to. There, I can get the reference to anyone who wants them. That's just what they did in the, in the methods section because they, they think that it's important. Or maybe even more, more importantly, and this is the thing that kind of goes back to is, is it going to harm you in some way? So if it might work, and there's no negatives necessarily. And the big one with resistance training with food in your stomach could be that you don't train as hard or you get sick or what have you, mm. then use it. So some people want to, want to be kind of research Nazis and say, well, the literature, this meta-analysis or what have you says, eh, it doesn't work. It's like, well, might it work for somebody? The chances are from a practical significance in one of those studies or some of those studies, there was at least one person for whom it worked. Could have been a pure placebo effect, but if that works for you and there's no negatives that you can that you know of or that have been documented, then why not? If you have the money, this is a fun. This is sort of a 
a luxury hobby, so to speak, go yeah. for it. Yeah. So the next one, and I have to even for myself, I'll have to uh, <laughs> um, look closer. So in the upper right, there's a um, uh, in the white text there, white background text with a red. This is from a study that Brad Schoenfeld did. Same topic, actually, heavy and light load training. I just kind of picked those and went and dug in on that literature because I've read those studies a good bit. And it says, to facilitate recovery, subject provided a supplement on training days containing 24 grams of protein, one gram of carbohydrate. It was a hydrolyzed whey protein isolate. Mm, okay. That's what they called it there, ISO 100. So this was two years so I presume this data was collected after they put this together. This was two years after the publication of this well-known, it was really kind of controversial um, review article that Brad and Alan Aragon did on protein timing around the workout, suggesting that on average there's no effect. It doesn't really matter. Hmm. You just need to get as much protein as you can. So they write that review. That's the bottom line evidence from uh, the, the, available, the available studies at that time and then a year later, probably Brad starts his this study, and they still include that protein mm. post workout, yeah, just to make sure, because it's not going to hurt. They've already done the training; they put the protein in, you're good to go. So, the uh, on the bottom left there, you can see this is a from a, a article that was published in 2012, looking at the same idea. I've tried to bolded some of the um, the bottom line quotes that I pulled from that article. They said they believe it's largely irrelevant whether the feed is given pre, during, or post-exercise. Nutrient sufficiency, having enough per se, rather than timing intake is more important. And I would agree with that, definitely. But they, they really said, yeah, the timing doesn't matter so much in that, in that article. Hmm. In addition, to, the addition of carbohydrate to protein affords no greater anabolic effects on protein turnover. That's probably technically true. Maybe at least. Yeah. Who knows? Um, Actually, I don't think it is necessarily given what I'll show you later on in all cases, but that was their conclusion. Um, so they're focusing there on essential amino acids the, as the primary uh, macronutrients required to optimize anabolic responses on protein turnover to exercise. So if you could slide our, uh, our pictures over to the lower left. So this is the, so that was in 2012. Good deal of literature had already kind of been put together. Five years later, the International Society of Sport Nutrition puts together a position stand on nutrient timing. Pre-exercise ingestion of essential amino acids or protein alone increases muscle protein synthesis. Um, it's been shown to produce significantly greater levels of muscle protein synthesis. The addition of carbohydrate at all time points, especially post-exercise, is well tolerated and may promote greater restoration of muscle glycogen. They're focusing on the possibility of, of carbohydrate being important. Ingesting carbohydrate alone or in combination with protein during resistance exercise increases muscle glycogen stores, offsets muscle damage, and facilitates greater training adaptations after acute and prolonged periods of resistance training. So they're like throwing the carbs, throwing the protein. So there's lots of varying opinions. Some of it depends on how you interpret the research, how you weigh it, hmm. and whether you sort of have, I think, that perspective of, of – if we see evidence that it can work, that means it can work. Does it mean it'll work for everyone? Absolutely not. Does it mean it may even work on, on average? Perhaps not. Again, think back to that Domus that I'll study five versus two to three times per week on the different legs. On average, did it, did it matter? No. But for those guys who grew much better on one versus the other training regime, which is about one third of you going in either direction, 
Heck yeah, it matters. So two-thirds of those individuals found a difference between five times versus two or three times a week. Hmm. That's the majority of individuals. But on average, using the means from the original study they published with those data, it didn't matter. Hmm. So for two out of three people, it matters. But on average, it doesn't matter. Hmm. So wrap your noggin around that second, right? That makes that's kind of difficult. So that's why I really think looking at the individual studies to see what's possible makes the most sense. So let's go to some of this, and I'll try to move more quickly here. The next one is uh, do, says, "Do carbs help?" Quote cherry pick studies. All right, boom, got it. Look at the man. All right, let's see. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So these were published a long while ago. Very cool set of studies. Tarpenning has been involved with some of this other literature that I'll talk about too. I think this is what was from a dissertation that was done. And uh, with recreational uh, trained individuals, they gave them about 50 grams of carbs from Gatorade during the workout. What that did, elevated insulin and reduced cortisol. So cortisol, sorry, it's raining here and my little Suki's shuddering from the thunder. She's very scared. Yeah, it's okay, little Rue. So if my arm's moving around, that's because I'm, I'm patting on my little baby dog. I would not. Expe- I would. I would be shocked if you didn't have a dog next to you, if not three dogs. <laughs> they're, they're all. They all. They all three are here for sure. Uh-huh. So, carbohydrates will tend to reduce cortisol. What cortisol is doing in part is making sure that there's glucose availability. So if you provide the glucose in the blood, you suppress the cortisol. Yeah. Cortisol is a steroid hormone steroids have long-lasting effects when they go in and they bind to their their nuclear receptors as they're known in the cell their effects will last for hours after the workout that's when you're growing is after the work you don't grow in the gym you grow afterwards but taking in carbohydrate in this case and the extent to which cortisol levels were suppressed during and after the workout was very important because that cortisol doesn't just fade away relatively quickly, like lactate would, for instance, you get a nice burn in the muscle and then your, your pump's gone in 5, 10, 15 minutes later. The cortisol is lingering around for quite a while. And what they, what they found, and if we can slide the pictures maybe as far left as possible, I guess. Right. Now look at those two right there. Oh, that's close, good enough. So what they did is they... Oh, guys, I think I lost Scott. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for watching another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. And thank you to our great sponsor, TrueNutrition.com, for making this all possible. TrueNutrition.com is owned by Dante Trudell, the creator of DC Training. He wanted to create a supplement company that offered high-quality third-party tested supplements at a fair price. High-quality protein powders, just about every type you could think of. Huge variety of flavors, plus health and performance supplements. Check them out, TrueNutrition.com. And hey, if you use our code ADVICES, you directly support our podcasting. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the program. All right, cool. I shall turn it back over to you, my oh. friend. All right, cool. So what they did then, so the, the, what they found when they looked at their data was that first and foremost, right above our pictures there, you can see the cortisol um, elevation. This is over the course of the beginning, the middle, and the end. In uh, the open bars are the control conditions, so no carbs. And what you can see there with those, they, can't, they don't even look like bars, they look like just sort of black, sort of small black lines, and there's actually a negative bar on the far most set of plots, is that the carbs, 
this is just 50 grams of Gatorade, essentially eliminated the elevation of cortisol. Really? Do the during training, yeah, just completely blocked it. Hmm. Typically, you'll get some elevation of cortisol. The harder you train, the more cortisol you get. It's a stress hormone. But you can, according to this study, the way they train here, on average, there's some variability, of course. Yeah. That's the next slide. You'll see a major suppression. And, of course, there's variability in the extent to which cortisol is raised in some individuals who aren't even taking the carbohydrates. So some people have a greater cortisol elevation. That's one thing that seems to be predictive in general of growth. So what they did, these are these right, rightmost plots here, was they correlated the changes in fiber size with the change in cortisol. So on the upper, the y-axis here, um, and I'm, I, you can't see this. I'm swiping here with my mouse. If you can see where my mouse is, um, I'm used to being you know, the presentation in front of people, they can see my mouse. Yeah, you'll see that the high elevation of cortisol in the upper left meant actually in the case of, of one person there at least a loss of fiber cross sectional area. That person actually did too much. Okay, they were overtraining literally in the bodybuilding sense. But as cortis as uh, as cortisol levels were suppressed and were lower and lower and lower, you found that there was a greater, greater, and greater increase in fiber size. Hmm. So those who reduced cortisol the most, which on average was much much more so the case than those who took in the carbs, experienced the greatest muscle growth. Hmm. And those two plots are in type 1 and type 2 fibers. So just about 50 grams of carbs is a really, really nice way to ensure a substantial reduction in cortisol levels. Hmm. And the more you reduce cortisol, according to this study, the more you grow. Hmm. And that's simply from that acute effect you're having on during and post-exercise cortisol responses. But that, acute, that release of cortisol isn't something that's, that's gone after an hour later when you're having your next meal. That cortisol, because it's a steroid hormone, has a long-lasting long lasting effect on altering, in this case, protein synthesis, changing, acting in a catabolic way, which is one of the things cortisol does. So carbs alone, according to this study, extraordinarily important, actually. The, the correlations there were negative 0.86. It's negative just because um, the less the cortisol was, the greater the fiber size. Yeah. So that's why it was a negative number. But negative 0.86, negative 0.72. <laughs> Those are really, really strong correlations. The point, the negative 0.72 suggests, and that's the lower of the two, that was for the type 2 fibers, I believe, suggests that about half of the reason, half of the variability in fiber size was a function of the elevation of cortisol. Cortisol accounted for half of the variation in fiber size. The other half could have been genetics or what have you, but the way they ran their stats and what they did in this experimental paradigm suggests about half or even more for the type 2s about half for the type 1s even more so the extent to which they grew was a matter of cortisol hmm. carbs matter this was 50 grams of carbs so let's go to the next slide there we go all right so this is a shout out to Darren Willoughby this is from um his lab many moons ago in this case actually what they used was a carbohydrate uh, control. So their control was, was just 20 grams of carbohydrate before and after training huh. versus 20 grams of, so sometimes people would, because the general assumption, as I said before, is that carbohydrates are not influencing muscle growth. 
So this study actually, um, in light of what I, we just talked about, the tarpenning study in the previous slides, like, eh, maybe they should, if they really want to look at, the, at, at protein versus nothing, they shouldn't have used carbohydrate as their quote-unquote placebo because it's not necessarily a placebo. So, but again, and the reason we, how we can wrap our head around that is if you, if you look back at those, those correlation plots, there were some people who were losing size and some people gaining size. So on a given program, you might have some people who thrive and some people who get buried. Hmm. And that variability is something you'll see. So in this case, they were comparing 20 grams of carbs before and after training. So almost 50, almost the same amount, um, which we know in some people can be effective, but that's a function of the training regime and the individual versus protein. And what they found was protein was better than carbs, and they didn't have even a, 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 a pure placebo, so flavored water, so to speak, that was disguised as being one of the other two conditions. Hmm. And, and all these plots on the left, all they basically show, these. this is the messenger RNA, which is sort of the, the signal coming from the nucleus to produce myosin, of a he, myosin heavy chain, one of the con- elements of the contractile proteins, the type 1 and the type 2 fiber types, and also local IGF-1. Hmm. So the local release of IGF-1 is one of those things that's very important for turning on the satellite cell activity, having its own anab- anabolic activity. Everyone knows about IGF-1, the big deal. The big, uh, the big question in the research literature is whether injected systemic IGF-1 or IGF-1 per se, or the locally produced stuff in the muscle itself acting locally as a messenger or as a signal transducer is important. And we know that's the case. That's pretty certain. So in this case, protein did a better job of turning on protein synthesis and upregulating the IGF-1 expression. So if we slide the picture, slide ourselves off to the left, there you go. And what you saw here, placebo versus protein, is that they had better gains in bench press and leg press strength. And in this case, they measured thigh mass. They sort of did a, um, a measurement of the thigh size. So in a way, it's maybe not, they didn't do an MRI. They didn't do a CAT scan. They didn't do a DEXA. They actually did a circumference measurement and used skin folds and, and sort of did another anthropometric kind of measurement that is one that's, in a way, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of old school practical bodybuilding. Who got the biggest legs after the end of the training regime? Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, they had increased size gains in the protein group. Compared to, in this case, remember, the carb group, which yeah. we would expect some of those individuals would have made gains. Maybe not so much. It's hard to know because different training regime, different study, different people, even though they're the same. The same uh, these were untrained subjects, actually, so not quite the same. But what we see here is protein in and of itself definitely can have an effect. Hmm. So we, we got a win for carbs. We got a win for protein. Protein may be even better than carbs. That's what I generally tend to say if you had to pick one or the other choose carbs, excuse me, choose protein over carbs. But carbs are nice too. And there's some nuances there maybe we can get to if someone asks questions about that. So let's go to the next slide. All right. Which um, this one's just not quite as noisy. Okay. Cherry pick studies, nutrient timing. Let's see here. The bottom or the upper left is inverted out. Yep. So this, so now, now we've got some, Let's slide our pictures off to the right there. Let's probably even go Let's up start. here, maybe, if that... Yeah. 
That's cool. Okay. Let's see if I missed anything. Yep. So in this case, they this is I love this study. It's really well done because they compared um, pre-workout nothing, a placebo, forty grams of carbs, six grams of essential amino acids, which has been shown to in, increase protein. Just six grams, and this is a thing you commonly find in over-the-counter supplements. Absolutely, so I think. John Meadows, that comes from the original research, some of which Kevin Tipton was involved with back in like 1999, 2000, 2001. They were doing these studies like 20 years ago. Hmm. It just takes a small amount to shift things in the positive direction in terms of protein synthesis. Hmm. So they did nothing, carbs only, essential amino acids only, or both. And if you take a look at over the course of their training period – um, you see sort of a very nice graded response. So the bottom left set of plots mm-hmm. shows body mass in the leftmost placebo, then carbs, then essential amino acids. And this is only six grams, of course. This is different than 40 grams of protein, what have you. Mm-hmm. And then the combo. And what you see there, of course, is the body mass increases, not so much in placebo, then carbs and essential amino acids is about the same. And if you combine the two, you have a superior increase in body mass. More importantly, if you look at fat-free mass, same kind of pattern. So the um, you saw some fat loss in all the groups. That's the furthest most set of, uh, of bar graphs there in, in this particular figure. But same thing. Placebo, you got some fat-free mass. It was an effective training program. Carbs, and, carbs versus essential amino acids only, about the same. You combine them, you get some synergy there. And that's this so the, the other chart to the or the other graph to the right, correct? Uh, no, we're still on that left. You're still on the left one. one. So okay. Yeah, I'm glad you asked me. So what you see there, if you look at the bottom of the on the left, this is body mass, yeah, fat-free mass, and fat mass. So those are the. I know this is. That's why I try not to add oh. too much. This is these are kind of okay. noisy plot. I see. So those are the changes in mass of the whole body weight, body mass. Okay. And then the fat-free mass. And the fat mass. So okay. everyone, the not so much weight gain in the placebo, but in the other conditions, they got a good increase in body weight. And they got a, a increase in fat-free mass in all conditions, but more so in carbs and essential amino acids, superior in the combo group. And then all the groups actually lost fat mass. It even looks like the, the carbs plus essential amino acids, um, they, they, practically speaking, they definitely were ahead of the game, but there's mm-hmm. some good variability there, so it wasn't significant, I don't believe. So you're getting better gains when you use car- either carbs or essential amino acids, and you're getting the best gains in this particular study if you're using both. So the next, so the bottom right there, and you can move our, move our pictures out of the way. It's not so important. You can see most of it there. Yeah, that's fine. So this one's a little bit more difficult to interpret, but it's, and it's arranged differently. They've got the groups in those sets of three bar graphs, placebo, carbs, essential amino acids, and the combo. And they did a nice job. They were being honest here with their, um, their presentation. So rather than just showing the changes, the bottom part of each one of those bar graphs is the actual fiber cross-sectional area, and the top open part represents the increase mm-hmm. in size. So if you look across all of those bar graphs, you'll see there's little open boxes kind of sitting atop like the like the top floor on a skyscraper, mm-hmm. those open boxes, and there's little percentages there. People would have to kind of dig in to, to see those on their screen. Maybe zoom in, pause, and zoom in with their phone. 
you look across the top, you see there's those open boxes for the placebo, carbs, essential amino acids, the combo. You see them all cases, and those are for the three different fiber types that they, they analyze. They even called it 2B, the study was so old, ones and the two type 2 fiber types. And what if you, you can look at the numbers, and there's a whole bunch of uh, little dots and things to indicate what was different among the groups, but the basic pattern there is exactly the same. You got some growth in the placebo, you got better growth in the carbs, better growth in the essential amino acids, and the little boxes atop the uh, original fiber sizes are bigger in the combo group. Hmm. So you can just look across there. Imagine like if you had uh, triplets of skyscrapers to choose from, the placebo, carbs, essential amino acids combo, and you want the one with the best, biggest penthouse, yeah. which is the open boxes are there. The biggest penthouses are on the far right one, carbs plus essential amino acids, yeah. because they got the best fiber growth in all the fiber types. It wasn't always significant. Because you're comparing all these different conditions, mm-hmm. but on average, definitely superior. Hmm. So the combo is good. So let's go to the next slide. All right. We're kind of developing the theme, and now we're going to. Is it this one? Yes, sir. You're on all it. Right. We're back in order now, I think. Another cherry of a study. So this one's like even a little more practical. Sometimes people say, well, you know, people never do, you know, the shit that people actually do in the studies. Yeah. Um, so how relevant is it? Well, that's one of the advantage of a scientific study is that you can isolate all the variables and you're not, you're not concerned about, you know, whether this did it or that did it because you only got one difference between the two groups. That's the supplement they were given or the type of training they did or whether they meditated in the morning or they visualized or any of the number of things you could study. Well, in this particular study, they had a, um, a supplement which was taken, a substantial one actually, taken before and after training, which had 40 grams of protein, 46 grams of carbs, 7 grams of creatine monohydrate. So let's do some creatine in there, mm-hmm. which we know works from other studies that have just compared creatine. This is sort of like in the trenches. Are you going to put creatine in your intro or your pre- and post-workout drink? Well, yeah, you probably are. So here's what happened. And the nice thing about this study is they took – um, resistance trained individuals and they familiarized them I think for six weeks four or six weeks so they got them past those neurological gains ah. got them got them kind of evened up the playing field with everyone because sometimes someone's kind of trained or they're relatively untrained it's like ah, eh, they start a real good training regime they're going to leap ahead sure and other people it might be detraining for them yeah so to that and that creates variability and that makes it more difficult to pick up statistically speaking, on changes between groups because you've got, you know, all, some people are detraining, some people are actually getting a training effect. So they even the playing field before they even started the study, and we saw the same kind of good stuff. Hmm. So um, if you look at the leftmost plot there, you see better body comp changes. So, oh, let me ask, let me ask add one more thing. This is very important too. So their treatment group, the one they were really interested in seeing if something happened, took the supplement before and after training. Mm-hmm. The other group took the same supplement, but in the morning and at night. Mm. So it wasn't, they didn't time the supplement around the training. Yeah. But overall, they did the same supplement taken in and the same macros, same calories. Nothing was different between the two groups. So there was no accommodation like one group, you know, ate less because they had the workout the uh, supplement before and after the training or because they had the supplement 
in the morning and the night, they all were, nothing changed overall dietarily. It was always the same for both groups all the way through the study, as far as they could tell. So this was just timing, and individuals had been familiarized to the training regime. This is a really well-done study because some people might say, well, shit, they spent like four or six weeks just sort of taking trained people and training them, yeah. and they didn't really use any of those data. Like, that's a lot of effort. Yeah. It is. But as an example for my master's thesis, we used, I used firefighters, and we compared them, um, their performance during something called a combat challenge versus during a rowing ergometry. But firefighters don't inherently know how to row. Most people don't inherently know how to row properly. So we spent six weeks familiarizing them to rowing. I brought in a crew member from the university, and she trained all of my subjects individually for six weeks, like three or four rowing sessions a week, I think it was. That's cool. So so we had a stable measurement from when we – for the things that we tested during the study. So they sort of stabilized. They got rid of those sort of newbie gains and switching to their training regime by pre-training them. So this is a really nicely done study. And if you look at the left there, you see better body comp changes. The leftmost is a lean body mass, so fat-free mass, about double the gains when they took in the supplement around the training. Um, The fat mass was pretty much unchanged, and the body fat percentage actually went down Hmm. with the nutrient timing. Who knows? You know, things do happen, and it was significant. If you look at the fiber-type growth, no difference. This is the, the middle plot. And sorry, there's a, this is better body fiber growth. It's actually better fiber growth there for that plot. That's right there in the middle. Yep. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And uh, type 1's no difference, but they got greater growth in the type 2A's and the type 2X's, they called them there. So, and the last, the rightmost there is the strength gains. They measured the big three, bench press, squat, and deadlift. Ended up getting better strength gains in the bench and the squat, but not in the deadlift. But practically speaking, they went up, looks like, about 10 pounds more <laughs> over the course of the training. So, well, really well done studying. This was a pure timing effect. Wasn't more protein. Wasn't more carbs. It wasn't more calories. Just timing. Yeah. So, there are some, there are some data. There is evidence that nutrient timing matters, but... Let's go to the next slide here, if we could. All right. And what's that one? It's got the big color, colorful pyramid on the left. Okay. There we go. We cannot forget the big picture. So it's interesting. Let me see if I can find. I forgot the uh, exact name of this. I can look it up real quick. Um, the name of the study that I've got a, a block of text I pulled from there. See if I can find it. Ah, won't be able to do it. I have to reload the app. Everything crashed. Mm. Uh, we'll skip that for now. So this is from a review um, that Kevin Tipton done did with Wittard in 2007. So early on, um, and Tipton's Tipton's wheelhouse is. Uh, protein metabolism. This is his thing. So he's going through the ins and outs of protein metabolism. This is studied so much. How many how much how many grams of protein do we need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what he says there, and this is what I've got, the red lines uh, um, indicating the where I'm reading is this is a passage from that particular review article 
examining the importance of overall energy intake. And, and he writes, energy intake is likely to have as much of an influence on protein requirements as does protein intake itself. Hmm. So what, what he's saying there essentially is that how much you're eating overall has a substantial effect on how much protein you need. Hmm. So, and some of the studies now have come out from Stu Phillips' lab, who's mentored by Kevin Tipton, in showing that having really, really large, like three or four grams per kilogram per day, so almost one and a half, two times what you typically see as, as the protein requirements for people who are weight training, mm-hmm. is beneficial when you're dieting down, you're dieting really, really hard. Hmm. So there's a, there's a relationship between the protein needs and your calorie needs in terms of what protein is best to hold on to that muscle mass when you're training. So on one end of the coin, if someone's eating, it would be very tough unless you intentionally did it to take in 6,000 calories a day and not get a gram of protein per pound. That would be you know, 800 calories, let's say, for, uh, for someone who's 200 pounds eating 6,000 calories a day, which would be extraordinary. You're going to get the protein almost accidentally, even if you just ate, if you just ate I think if you just ate, ate potatoes, you wouldn't get complete protein, but you get pretty close to that. Okay. You definitely get your RDA. Oh, yeah, you definitely yeah. get your RDA. So I have to go back and look at that. So they write that. And then the other uh, line you'll see in that, and this is on the upper right, look, reading the text here, is that during resistance exercise training, resistance exercise training has been shown that positive energy balance is more important than increased protein hmm. to elicit gains in bo- lean body mass. Interesting. So they're kind of throwing this out. So here's the thing. You get the question so often, like, how much protein do I need? Blah, 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 to gain. It's like, how much are you eating? That's the important thing. And that's why, if you look at the pyramid there, this is my nutritional hierarchy of importance yeah. that I put forth in my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book. At the bottom, the base, what's most important is your total caloric intake. The hmm. law of thermodynamics does indeed apply. So... You know, you can worry about some of those things higher up. And notice I've got nutrient timing is in the maroon. Sorry for those who are colorblind, but second from the top block there, that's a fine-tuning thing. You know, how important is that? It's sort of a low importance. Yeah. But your total caloric intake is the most important thing. You're not going to – you can manipulate all the macros all you want. If you don't have a negative caloric balance, then you're not going to lose body fat. If you don't have some sort of a positive energy intake – you're not going to gain. Those things need to happen. So if you could slide the uh, slide us off to the left there, Scott. All right. So the question then becomes, if you think about the things that, you know, Tipton and Witter wrote many, many moons ago, like how often do, do you see studies like the Serial Gains Nation post that I put up not too long ago on my Instagram um, where they're examining, like, how many calories do you need to gain? Like, how much variability is there? You don't see those things done. It's like, well, why? But there's tons of protein stuff that's being done. Mm-hmm. Why not so much literature on energy surplus and energy deficit? We're starting to see some really nice things looking at toggling your diet, you know, um, refeeds, those sorts of things are starting to come out. That's nice. It's very easy to bring people in to a study and say, hey, we're going to help you lose body fat. Yeah. In one of the different groups. But you take someone and say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to overfeed you. You're going to be miserable. You're not going to eat the food. (laughs) People who've who've, like really pushed the size gains, 
No, and I think the I would be I would wager to bet that eight or nine out of ten guys are in the same opinion that I have that trying to gain weight and overeat is much less is much more difficult. Yeah, and uh, then trying to drop weight and drop body fat. Of course, at the ends of the spectrum, it's difficult no matter how you weigh it. But so you're it's gonna you're gonna have a hard time pulling in, especially untrained individuals. One of the issues with untrained people is they're gonna grow really, really readily anyway. So they don't even need to overeat necessarily. But you take in trained guys and say we want to make you overeat. You're gonna gain some body fat in most cases. It's gonna happen. Or at least for most people, not necessarily everyone, but many people. So this is a hard thing to monitor and measure. You've got to use dietary recall, which is notoriously fallible. It doesn't work very well. People will underestimate. They'll misreport, not even consciously necessarily, what they're actually eating. Hmm. So to ask someone to put down something, uh, you know, a massive amount of excess calories is a difficult prospect. You, people won't do that in large part. And th- there was actually um, a study I was partially involved with just doing some pilot work for it at, at University of Texas at Austin where we had a, um, a giant uh, intra-workout where they had a giant meal supplement we had to take in. And it was brutal to put this thing down. It was, yeah. very, it was difficult. Yeah, we had to, actually we had to slam it so they could measure glycemic uh, responses to the things. So it was like, a, I don't know, some 1,000 calorie thing. They literally we had to drink it in, in 10 seconds or less as possible. Oh it's kind gosh. of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was like chug, chug, chug. It was like running my college days. So this is a very hard thing to do and it may mean body fat gain. So you've got, you're going to have difficulty recruiting subjects. But this could be, according to what Tipton has said there, and what I think most people, I think Dante would agree with this. I think the people who, are, who, who have, have and know how to put on large amount of muscle mass on individuals recognize that you have to have the caloric excess. So let's take a look at some, uh, some research that kind of demonstrated that because they're out there. Not much. I found those actual two studies that are, that are cited in the passage above. So let's hit the next slide, which should eat, it says eat enough to grow. Got it. This is, uh, there's a lot of, lot of data here. You can, yeah, you can leave us. Um, actually take us to the back to where we were is probably better. Okay. And I've kind of like made this a little bit easier. They had a comp- somewhat complicated, um, uh, experimental design here, but they had actual six groups, they had groups that didn't do any training and the groups that, that, uh, took these different supplements in. They had one that was a placebo. One was an arginine lysine combo. Cause that increases growth hormone by itself. Didn't really do much as far as they could tell there. They measured IGF-1, didn't change, hmm. wouldn't, have, wouldn't have expected. The important group that was uh, in this study, which is why, why it's so important to kind of recognize that someone did a good job with this, was um, they had these individuals taking in a, a meal supplement, exceed, it's kind of like ensure meal supplement. And the idea was that they were taking in enough calories to ensure about a one pound of weight gain per week. Okay. That's what they're going for. And they end up getting about 8.6, something like that. It was a 10-week study. So they did pretty good. If you could raise us up to the upper left, maybe see that. There we go. All right. So in this exceed group, they're only taking in about 330 calories per day on average. It varied because they were sort of titrating the amount of the supplement they would drink, one and a half cans, one can, two cans, depending on the person. Um, but they're shooting for one pound of weight gain per week. The other group just trained, 
and they took in um, arginine lysine. They also had a placebo group taking in nothing. Arginine lysine was like nine grams a day. That's enough to get a growth hormone release because those those are um, amino acids that will do that. But and they just one of the tests that I think they probably got the supplement for free from a company that sponsored them. So why not? They'll throw it in there. The real meat and potatoes. In this case, a supplement of this study was when they when they had them gaining it one pound a week. It's a nice guideline to use. Someone wants to gain, try to get a pound a week. You're not gonna you're not gonna do if you do 52 pounds in a year, you're gonna get some muscle mass out of that. That's a tremendous weight gain. It can be done. Um, did that with Jordan Peters in even less time, but Jordan's a monster, so he's a it's extraordinary. And when you look at the, you can see the percent body fats are there. Um, that's not what's so important. The fat-free body mass, which I have an arrow pointing to, the bottom of that column in the chart, is they got about 2.1 kilos, so, you know, four and a half, five pounds in the placebo and that arginine lysine group, and they got 3.6 kilograms of fat-free mass in the group where they were shooting for weight gain. They were ensuring they are gaining weight at about a pound per week. That's the ticket. When they did that, they got about 70% better gains in fat-free mass just for taking in an extra 330 calories per day in the form of the supplement. So they were using the supplement to ensure the weight gain. That's not a whole lot. That's, that's one-seventh of a pound. That's about um, seven. Oh, you got 454 grams in a pound, so divide that by seven. You know, we've got about um, – it's so about 65 grams of body weight a day. It's not very much, hmm. not a ton, but that's that was enough to keep them moving in the right direction. A 70% increase. That's an extraordinary difference. If you look back at some of these other plots from the nutrient timing studies, we're talking about maybe a 50% difference, not a 70% difference or a smaller amount. So this is a substantial uh, substantial gain. They weren't mess. They were they were taking in 22 grams of carbs. 14 grams of protein, 9 grams of fat in that, on average, 330 calories a day. They weren't, there's nothing fancy about it. It it wasn't quite an isocaloric type of supplement. A little bit carb focused, extra 14 grams of protein, 9 grams of fat. It wasn't like they jacked up the protein by 70 grams a day. It's only 14 extra grams. But what they did is made sure they were gaining weight and they got a 70% better increase in fat free mass over just 10 weeks. So let's take a look at a more aggressive study, the one that um, is the, uh, the poster study for Serial Gains Nation, okay. which is the next slide. Let's see here. Is this it? Going for it, 2000. Yep, that's yes. the one. So this, people can find the details of this on my, um, uh, my Instagram so this is a Rosinec study from 2002, and they gave two of their groups, um, one a little bit more um, protein-focused, one basically carb-focused. Um, well, I mixed up the order of those, kind of flip-flopped, but you can tell which is which. I put the macros there in the middle of the plot in red, but I've got, I've got them flip-flopped as to how they're, they're organized in the legend for the chart. Basically, 2,000 extra calories a day that was not accommodated for in their diet. So they did dietary recall. Mm-hmm. As best they can tell, the extra 2,000 calories a day in these mega supplements meant about an extra 2,000 calories a day in those groups that got those. One got basically carbs, 450 grams of carbs, a little bit of protein, 
14 grams of fat, a lot of carbs, not a ton of protein, a little extra fat. The other one got 356 grams of carbs, 106 grams of protein, hmm. 18 grams of fat. So that's some more protein. But what's the major thumper here? 2,000 calories a day extra yeah. over the course of their training period. And if you look at the increase in body mass in the open and the completely filled, the dark black um, uh, plots there, the, the bar graphs, you're seeing about double the gains in body, much more than double the gains in body mass actually, but double the gains in fat-free mass. Huh. Those groups that um, took in the uh, – these were recreationally trained or beginning weight trainers, what they called them. So, so they were had some weight training experience, recreationally trained, what we might call them now. Um, they didn't get fat. They changed them in uh, body fat. And fat mass was, was nil hmm. in both of those groups, pretty much close to zero. It dropped down a little bit lower because a lot of times you'll see this in people who take on a new training regime that produces gains. They'll repartition. They'll get some fat-free mass, lose some body fat. That's what happened in the control condition. But it wasn't like the control group, you know, lost. It's not even one, um, one kilo on average. It's like 2.2 pounds. It wasn't like they got shredded, and the other group didn't gain any body fat. But mm. they basically doubled their gains in fat-free mass when they really pushed the calories. In this case, they only got about 12 – looks no, yeah, it's, it's and actually about 8 pounds of – seven or eight pounds of increased body weight. And about the, and basically all of that came from fat-free mass. So again, different studies, variability across individuals. Who knows? They did use dietary recall. So it's kind of actually amazing to me, I'll admit this, that they took in the extra 2,000 calories and nearly doubled their caloric intake and still um, ate everything else the same, which mm -hmm. they instructed them to do. They did it, apparently, or at least they reported that they had. Either way, taking in a massive and extraordinary excess of calories led to about double the gains in, in, uh, in fat-free mass, which that's we amazing. consider to be muscle mass here. It's, it's awesome. But that's aggressive. Yeah. That's a lot. So I found this study because I remembered it. I started doing the cereal gains nation thing because cereal is a great way to put in food um, afterwards. It tastes good. You can put in a lot of food. And each box of cereal is just about 2,000 calories. So that pr carbohydrate protein group is pretty close to what I do as my post-workout meal. Um, and this study actually shows basically documentation for very close to what I've been doing lately, hmm. trying to put on size now since I have kind of time for a real off-season. So that's an, impressive, that was a, that's an impressive increase in size gains just from eating enough. The bottom of the nutritional hierarchy of importance got to get enough food in. You could put all the protein in you wanted. You know, if you're a little bit low, it might help. But if you want to make sure things are happening, get the food in first and foremost. If you're eating enough, you're probably going to get plenty of protein. Notice, too, that the group, same amount of calories, the, the uh, two groups, the carbs, carb-focused supplement and the carb-protein, there's a substantial difference in the protein um, component there. So they had plenty of protein in the excess caloric intake when they took the carb-based supplement in. It wasn't that having more protein, as they did in the carb-protein supplement, made a difference. Actually, I mean, mathematically, it was a little bit less in the carb-protein. It's basically the same. So it wasn't adding the protein that, that sealed the deal. It was the calories. 
And as was, was noted in that passage from the Tipton and Wittard review article, is that this may be of more importance, the caloric excess, a positive caloric intake, may be more important than protein per se, and it varies as a function, your protein needs vary as a function of your caloric intake. So they got an extra 24 grams of protein along with that carb-based supplement, but they also got an extra 2,000 calories. That's important. So if you've got that many calories, you've got such an, an, such an anabolic environment that you're going to make much better use of the protein that you have. And that's what some of the nitrogen balance studies have shown very, very qualitatively. It's not a good quantitative measurement. But you see this, that the, the, um, and you see this in the, in the Stuart Sue Phillips studies that have also been done with low calories but higher protein. The protein needs vary as a function of your caloric intake, very, very much so. So let's go to the summary slide, the last one here. And it's really pretty simple. Eat to grow. Strict, nu um, strict nutrient timing may not matter, or it may matter, but it's unlikely to hinder. I've shown some studies here showing that nutrient timing can make a difference. Hmm. Some people have the opinion it's not. Many studies with protein, for instance, suggest it may not make a big difference. Um, but nutrient availability during training can come from this pre and post intake. You don't have to use an intra workout. You don't have to buy something fancy. Some of these studies gave a supplement before and then one after. Hmm. You give it before, it's going to be around for most of your training. So you've got you've got that you've served that purpose. You, if someone, some people might do better with a one or two hour before workout meal. That's substantial. You eat 800, 1,000 calories an hour and a half before you train, and that doesn't upset your, your GI. You can train just as hard with or without that. Doesn't doesn't impact you. That That's going to be around in your system for quite some time. You basically serve the purposes of nutrient timing by making sure you have nutrient availability when you're creating that stimulus to turn on muscle growth. Yeah. But the big, the, big, um, the big message here, the big take home, is that positive energy balance rules the day for muscle gain. So the rest of it's sort of, to some degree, it's you know bells and whistles, it's icing on the pyramid, icing on the cake. Get enough food in and you're going to grow. Obviously, you may have to titrate that based on the relative gains in muscle versus fat. If you're just getting fat and you've interviewed people and you've talked about this many times, sometimes you're just gaining fat, so you have to sure. monitor those things the more advanced you get. You're not going to get gains like this if you've been training for 10 or 15 years, but you're going to need to have a positive energy intake if you want to make gains. And that may be the most important thing above all, that makes as long sense. as you're not obviously deficient in protein or, or essential fatty acids or what have you. Yeah. So stuff worth knowing. Nice. Nice. Let's this do. is good. This right is on. good. Cool. Let me see if I can bring us back to just us. Boom. There we are. Please. Um, so, yeah. I, you know, I, can I ask you a, a, a question out of curiosity? Yeah. Um, I, I run into people sometimes that want to train fasted. Right. Uh, it, 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 you know, everything we're talking about is it, it sounds like you can really make a difference uh, with, with, you know, timing your nutrients, putting protein and carbs around your training. Um, what are your thoughts uh, to training fasted and not just in relationship to, you know, what we've learned today, but, but just in general. Um, God, there's just there's so much there. If someone, well, first and foremost, if someone having some food in 
um, or eating breakfast beforehand, if they feel so much better training fasted. Yeah, that's what I'm telling Yeah. Yeah, then um, stick with that. What okay. I think has happened and I, what I've seen multitude of times is people will try an intra-workout and um, maybe it's glucose, which will tend to pull much more water in the, into the GI. They get bloated from that and they try it once, they don't like it. Mm-hmm. They don't start small. Note the six grams of essential amino acids mm. from, from that. That's all it took in the bird et al. studies. Yeah. That's not very much. You're not, you're not even going to know that's in there. You could make your own placebo drink. Have your significant other, your training partner, someone say, give you like, okay, here's the flavored water, and here's the flavored water with six grams of essential amino acids. Yeah. Use sort of a citrusy flavor to cover it up. You, you won't even know. Yeah. So, But that's been demonstrated. Not that uh, notice there's the law of diminishing returns. The more advanced you are, mm. the less likely you're going to be able to get these kinds of larger effects you see in less trained individuals. But six grams of essential amino acids does have an impact on positive protein balance. You could throw that in, and you wouldn't even know it. Yeah. If you're drinking, if you're drinking something, I mean, you would know it if you didn't flavor it. You could right. taste it, <laughs> and hopefully that wouldn't throw you off too much. So that's the thing is that. I would never want to do anything that would sacrifice your training efforts. Yes. Um, in the same way, don't want to do things that sacrifice your, your sleep, mm. for instance. So yeah. you eat so much before you go to bed, you can't sleep. Yeah. That's not good. You're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so there's that. If you're, if you're dieting down, if you're someone, for instance, who doesn't care so much about muscle mass and you're dieting down and uh, you can, in end effect, take in less food by training fasted mm-hmm. and the training itself has a negative or in this case we consider a positive impact on your appetite meaning it reduces it someone might be able to get up have their cup of coffee you know futz around for a while go to the gym at 10 mm-hmm. or whenever they can and then they train at 12 and they don't they don't feel like they need a first meal until one mm-hmm. that for them and then that means they eat less throughout the day if muscle mass isn't a major priority for them, but getting lean is, you know, that, that could be a great strategy for that individual person. Okay. Um, okay. So Which that's, is, so that's, yeah. Yeah. It was just something that kind of came to mind just, uh, you know, trying to apply things into the real world because not everybody, not everybody wants that. I think for the vast majority of us though, we're thinking about how we can squeeze in, you know, food around and in our training now after hearing this. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I would suggest folks try, you can do like a high, I didn't even talk about like the, the ingredients. I've done so many talks and we talked about it here, I think, in several other podcasts I've done. Use a hydrolyzed way, use a highly branched cyclic dextrin. Get something that's going to have the least potential for GI distress. Ah, yeah. Start in small amounts, work your way up. You know, the easiest way to kind of see whether it's making a difference for you is give it a two month shot. Work your way up to, you know, 30, 40 grams of protein maybe 75, 50 or 75 grams of carbs, something like that, substantial, um, that you're drinking starting before, throughout, and by the time you're done with your workout, finish it up. Get used to that, you know, and then remove it. Huh, okay. Do yeah. an elimination and see how you do, see how you feel. Yeah, yeah. And that is the most substantial effect that I see in many, many people is they will travel somewhere uh-huh. or they will, they have forgotten it. They blanked out or they ran out accidentally. They thought they had another bottle of X ingredient or X pre-made supplement and they don't have it. And they go to the gym, try to train without it. And some of it could be here, mm-hmm. which is fine. Hey, you know, what works, works, whether it's your, your total placebo or an actual physiological effect. We want to, we want to figure out what works. If you can hypnotize yourself into being huge, then, 
you'd do it, right? Yeah, of course. So, but when you eliminate it like that, that's where people are like, oh man. Then they see the yeah, difference. like I just got bonked, you know. I just like things that I could have done easily. I could. It's like someone like took another took a gear away from my from my ability to train. Right, right. So that's a good experiment to do. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question, though. All right, well, uh, hey, let's wrap this thing up then. Um, cool. Of course, guys, if you do want to check out any of those supplements. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you used our sponsor, True Nutrition, and you can even buy these things individually. So if you wanted to buy some hydrolyzed whey, you can pick that up on its own. You can pick up highly branched cyclic dextrin. That way you would have the ability to kind of, you know, put your own concoctions together at whatever doses you wanted to do. Same with EAA, or you can get those things all together. I know, I believe last I checked, they were currently out of Perry MD, the, uh, the mountain dog mm. formula of mm. uh, intra workout, but they, you know, they do carry that regularly. I'm sure it will be back. So there's a chance if you're, if you're not seeing this right at the release, then it may already be back in stock. So check out true nutrition, of course, check out, uh, be your own bodybuilding coach. You can get that at Amazon. You get the hardcover there, or you can go to byobbcoach.com. That's Scott's uh, book, which will take you all the way from the beginning of your off season. Actually, before that, it'll help you plan your off season, carry it out, run you through your contest prep and your peak. Uh, in fact, I know somebody who's using your strategies in your book right now, uh, Jeremy cool. Jason on uh, Facebook. And uh, he was just over yesterday. We were working on some posing together, and he's looking incredible. Natural guy, awesome. very, very lean. And I believe he's doing his trial peak uh, this this week now. Uh, he's cool. going to be competing in a couple of weeks. So uh, he's done an incredible job. He's coaching himself, and he's using the book. So definitely check that out. And, of course, FortitudeTraining.net. Guys, we'll see you Thanks, soon. Sir. Thanks, as always, Scott. You're welcome, my man. Thank you.